For the first time in its history, Scotland Yard opens its official files to bring you the true story of some of the most baffling cases. These are the true stories, the plain, unvarnished facts, just as they occurred, originally reenacted for you by an all-British cast. Only the names have, for obvious reasons, been changed. The original broadcasts were presented with the full cooperation of Scotland Yard. Research is from Percy Hoskins of the London Daily Express. Whitehall 1212 is written by Willis Cooper. This recreation is directed by Chuck and Megan Merrill. I am Chief Superintendent John Davidson, the caretaker of Scotland Yard's famous Black Museum. Good afternoon. I have here from our file, number 198920, a rusted lock, complete with handle. Once it was brightly nickel-plated and both handsome and utilitarian. Now its beauty has been completely destroyed by the effects of a very hot fire, and its usefulness is ended by the fact that it is locked. Some of its parts have been fused by the heat which it endured. It's a part of the right-hand door of a motor car, the door next to the driver's seat. It was locked before the fire. I should like you to meet Chief Inspector Albert G. Clark, who's known, as all Clarks are, as Nobby. The 5th of November, 1605, was the day set by a certain Guy Fawkes to touch off a number of barrels of gunpowder he'd secreted in the vaults under the Houses of Parliament, thereby blowing the members of the august body, complete with King James I, through the roof. Unfortunately for Mr Fawkes, and happily for the monarch, a Lord Monteagle learned about the enterprise and flung Master Fawkes into the dungeon, from which he emerged only to be hanged. Thus, the principal form of celebration of Guy Fawkes Day on the 5th of November is the kindling of cheerful bonfires in which effigies of Guy Fawkes and other gentry are burned to the accompaniment of hilarious noises. Quite late in the evening of the 5th of November, 1930, quite another type of bonfire made history near Hardingston, a village quite near Northampton. This is the way they related the story. My name is Spiller, Jane Spiller. My friend here is Victoria Aspinwall. It wasn't truly the 5th of November. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning of the 6th. But it was still close enough to be practically Guy Fawkes Day. Be still, Jane. We're walking home from a Guy Fawkes' dance in Northampton. Addingstone is only a step away from Northampton. You walk along the main London road from Northampton till you come to the turn-off to the left on Hardingston Lane. Only about two miles. Two miles. First, as we started to turn off to Hardingston, down the lane, a motor car passed us. Going towards London very fast, blinding us quite. Aye, and when it got past us, we saw a man. The moon was quite bright. So we could see his face quite well. He hadn't any hat. He climbed out of the ditch onto the metal road. And he looked as if he were mixed up. Wasn't sure what he was doing. And like. we gaped at him. Didn't know what to say either. And it was just at that precise second 
I saw the blaze round the bend. Down Hardenston Lane where there shouldn't be any blaze. And I said to Jania, What's the blaze, you said? And the man from the ditch. The man without a hat. He said, It looks as if someone's having a bonfire. A late bonfire, she said. Yes, that's right. And we turned to look in the direction of the blaze. Down the lane, Todd Hardingston. And when we turned back to look at the man. He was running away. Hurrying away. That's right, hurrying away. He didn't say a word. He started toward London and then he stopped and looked around. The moon was so bright. And then he turned toward Northampton and he started to hurry that way. We'd have done something, but he was hurrying down the road. Anyway, we didn't care who he was. And there was the bonfire. We just thought it was a bonfire, Victoria. Yes, and so we went on down the lane to see who made the fire. And the fire seemed to be getting bigger, so we hurried. Hurried and certainly... There it was. Right there in front of us. Blazing like... Like blazes. The flames were 15 feet high. But we could see what it was. It was a motor motor car. And there was somebody in it. In the driver's seat. And he was on fire too. He was dead. The girls had forgotten about the hatless stranger who climbed out of the ditch and ran away. They went for a policeman. Quite a number of men arrived... The fire was clearly visible in the village, of course, and presently it was put out and only sizzled. The unfortunate occupant of the driver's seat was carried away in several sacks and put away to cool in the cellar of the local hospital. Then the two girls remembered the man without a hat and they told Sergeant Moody about it. Sergeant Moody was the bald-headed one from Northampton. He wasn't very old, was he, Victoria? About 35. 36, I was thinking. 35. He looked like a commercial traveller. He had no hat. Victoria, we said that. He seemed confused, I think I'd say. Wouldn't you, Jane? Bewildered, I'd say. He finally went off to Northampton. He started the other direction first, though. Toward London. But he went down the road toward Northampton. A dark man. Need a haircut. Wore a checkered waistcoat. And a dark red tie. He had a tiny black moustache. And, and a wart on the left side of his neck. A cut on his right hand. Limped his right foot. Bulgy eyes. Pop eyes. Tall. Weighed about 11 stone. Would you know him again, Victoria? Certainly I'd know him, Jane. It was all very suspicious, Sergeant. Him running away like that. From the fire. I think he had something to do with it. I think you ought to find him, Sergeant. Sergeant Moody and the rest of the Northampton police made quite a point of trying to find the hatless stranger that day, but he wasn't to be found. By mid-morning, both the burned car and the burned victim had cooled off enough for a closer examination. There wasn't enough left of the man, they had decided it was a man, to tell anything about him. The car proved to have been a Morris Minor saloon, and the registration plate, though badly burned, was still legible. Sergeant Moody... I put in a trunk call to County Hall, Westminster, in London to check the name to which the number was issued. We'll have it for you in half a second, Sergeant. That was MU1468, wasn't it? Um, MU1468, yes. That's a London registration, according to the book. Quite. We'll have it for you in... uh... Here it is now. The name is Paddy. Donald Patrick Paget, address Buxted Road, Finchley. The car is a Morris Minor Saloon. Was, you mean? <laughs> uh, Donald Patrick Paget, Buxted Road, Finchley. Thank you very much. I then consulted the London Metropolitan Telephone Directory in the Northampton Station to discover whether a telephone number was listed for the name Paget in Buxted Road, Finchley. It was. 
I spoke to a woman who identified herself as Mrs Pamela Paget, wife of the owner of the car. I broke the news to her as gently as possible, and she announced her intention of proceeding to Northampton. She arrived the same day, the 6th of November. I came as quickly as I could, Sergeant. Where is he? The, uh, the remains are in the hospital mortuary, Mum. I suppose I couldn't see him. Well, I'm afraid I must advise strongly against it, Mrs Paget. I, uh, I'm afraid he'll be a trifle difficult to identify. I am not easily shocked, Sergeant. Well, yes, Mum, but, uh, perhaps it'd be better to wait until you've rested. I could have a nice cup of tea sent in for you. No, thank you, Sergeant. Good hot tea? Thank you. Perhaps you could tell me how this thing happened. Uh, well, uh, we don't know a great deal about it ourselves as yet. It happened only this morning and, uh, we've not, well, we've only completed our preliminary examinations. We thought perhaps you might shed some light on the matter. I'm sure I can't. Uh, you and the late Mr Paget were on good terms, of course. We were. Of course. Uh, what was Mr Paget's occupation? He was a commercial traveller. Commercial traveller? I must notify the people he represents. And the insurance companies. Yes. Yes. I... Well, I suppose Mr Paget was alone when this happened. Well, there was nobody else in the car when, uh... At the time of the fire, Mum, but, uh... There was a curious circumstance. I meant to ask you about it at once. Yes. Uh, the young woman who discovered the fire reported that there was another person. A man or a woman? Oh, a man. What would a woman be doing there? Oh, why? A man. He was proceeding along a ditch beside the road, though we're, of course, not certain that this man had any connection with the case, of course. But, uh... What did this man look like? Did he give his name? Oh, no, no. There was practically no conversation with him and he hurried away. He's not been seen since. Do you have his description? Uh, yes. Yes, I have the description given by the young woman who saw him. <laughs> it was quite a bright moonlit night, as you remember. <laughs> if indeed the moon does shine in London. The description. Please. Age. About 35 or 6. He wore no hat. That could be anyone. A dark man weighing about 11 stone, wearing a chequered waistcoat. <gasps> eh? My husband was wearing a chequered waistcoat. Oh. Huh. A dark red tie? And he wore a dark red tie. Ah. I'll best call these young women to see if they can remember any more details about this. Go on. With the description. Please. Oh, yes. Um, the man had a small black moustache, a wart on the left side of his neck, mm. a cut on his right hand, oh. had bulgy eyes, pop eyes, the young woman said, and dark curly hair. And he limped. His right foot, he limped. His left foot, Sergeant. Eh? He limped. With his left foot. He was wounded in the war in 1916. He limped with his left foot. 
Do you mean to say you recognise this man, Mrs Padgett? Of course I do. Who? He's the man you thought was burned to death in the motor car. Who? My husband, Donald Padgett. But Mrs Padgett... So Don's added murder to his list of sins at last, has he? The reporters, the self-styled crime men, pounced on the story by mid-afternoon and flung their headline broadcast from Land's End to John O'Groats. Before nightfall on the 6th of November, a third of the people of England, Scotland and Wales were peering into the faces of perfect strangers, hoping for a glimpse of Donald Patrick Paget, the proclaimed fugitive. At Scotland Yard, we went a little more slowly. We weren't as certain as the newspapers. They got me an impression of the dead man's teeth, and when it arrived, I dispatched it to one Clementine Walter, who was Paget's dentist of record. Ms Walter telephoned me at the yard at ten minutes after eight, the night of the sixth. Is that Inspector Clark? Yes, Clark speaking. Walter here. Walter? The dentist, ma'am. Paget's dentist. I should think you'd know my voice by now. Sorry, Miss Walter. Um, did you have anything to report? That impression of your precious dead man's teeth? Yes. They're nothing at all like Donald Paget's. Really? I've checked exhaustively through all my rather extensive records. It's taken a great deal of time. I'm sorry, ma'am. It's quite impossible that the dead man's teeth could be those of Paget's. I'll be glad to demonstrate to you at your convenience, but if you could have the actual teeth, I could show you more graphically. All right, ma'am. Thank you kindly. Um, my fee will be, in view of the fact that this work's been done after hours, one guinea, sir. I'm sure the Home Office will consider it money well spent, ma'am. Good night. Sergeant Talbot? Come in, sir. I was just about to come in, sir. Do so, by all means. Yes, sir. I've checked four persons so far, sir. Well? I asked each one of them to give me his own description of Paget, sir, and they're all his close acquaintances. And? Well, they all agree in detail with that given by the two young women at Ardingstone. But the handless man climbing out of the ditch? Each one of them said independently that Paget was one of those odd chaps who's never been known to wear a hat, winter or summer. Looks as if he's our boy, then. Uh, wait a sec, William. Yes, sir. Nobby, um, Inspector Clark here. Um, Miss Pamela Paget here to see you, sir. No? Well, ask her to come in. Shall I ask the other lady to come in too, sir? Who's she? Um, Miss Ellen Mc... McEckrin. Who? Mc... McEckrin. Ellen McEckrin. Well, who's she? I don't know, sir. She's with Mrs. Paget. Oh, all right. Send her in too. Yes, sir. Ever hear of an Ellen Mc... Ellen McEckrin, Talbot? No, sir. There was an Alice McEckrin, sir. A pickpocket. She was struck by a tram last Tuesday in Hammersmith Broadway. She was killed. Talbot, you're a mine of information. I doubt this is the same one, though. No, sir. That all, sir? Yes, thank you. For now. Is this Inspector Clark's office, please? Right here, Mrs Paget. Come in. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Come in, my child. Inspector Clark, this is Miss Ellen McEckrin. How do you do, Miss McEckrin? How do you do? Won't you be seated? Thank you, sir. Well, Mrs Paget, I'm afraid it was your husband. I was certain it was. 
Yes? I'd just come back from Hardingstone and I went straight to find Ellen. <laughs> uh, excuse me, Mum. I'm afraid I don't understand, Mrs Paget. Do sit still, Ellen. Yes, Mum. That bald-headed sergeant out there, what's his name? Sergeant Moody. Oh, Moody, that's it. He said something when we were talking about not being sure whether the body in the fire was a man or a woman. He told me that on the telephone this afternoon. Apparently they're sure now that it was a man. The medical officer... Yes, I know, but I didn't know when I came back. That's why I went to find Ellen here. <laughs> well, she thought perhaps it might be me, but it wasn't, was it? No, child, it wasn't. Neither you nor your father. I'm afraid I'm... <laughs> Father's still in jail! You can't burn up people in jail now, can you, sir? Will you tell me... Will you tell me... Tell me what you're talking about, Mrs Paget? What has this child and her father got to do with a... I was afraid it was Ellen that Donald had murdered. Oh, my father, you said. Why, for heaven's sake? Ellen's father had threatened to do bodily harm to Donald. Threatened to burst his bloody neck! Oh, pardon me. Hey, why? Because he wasn't paying the 20 shillings a week he'd agreed to pay, of course. What 20 shillings? For my baby. <laughs> what? The father of Ellen's three-year-old child is Donald Paget. Inspector Clark. John Davidson from the Black Museum shared a pint of mild and bitter with me that night after I finally shut up shop. I don't know, John, I said. Yeah, about what? About people. Uh, no accounting for taste. <laughs> yeah, fine. Original statement, that. <laughs> yeah, true, though. Uh, you were speaking about the wife. Yeah. Married to this fellow, he goes out and contracts a bigamous marriage. Uh, to a girl who's an obvious idiot, you said. Well, not very clever. Uh, um, maidservant, you said. What we used to call a slavey. Uh, fortunately, that class is disappearing. Yeah, it doesn't help the ones that are left, John. Well, the Paget class never dies out. I shall do my best to assure this one is dying out. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, you were talking about his wife? Yes. She apparently doesn't have any resentment uh, toward this young... Uh, what's her name? Ellen? Ellen. Why should she? wasn't Ellen's fault that she has the mentality of a mangle wurzel. Any resentment she harbours is towards her husband. The missing Donald Patrick Paget Esquire who lit one too many bonfires on Guy Fawkes Day. For which, God willing, he'll hang. Uh, do you have any ideas regarding the unfortunate man in the car? None. Mm, well, I know nothing about it, Nobby. But uh, knowing nothing about it, I may have an idea. Hmm? What? The lawful wife may have an idea, too. Mrs. Paget. I... Explain, please, John. Uh, if a man commits, uh, what shall we call it, uh, an indiscretion like this, marrying bigamously and fathering a child... Lord of the Lang calls it a felony. Well, for the purpose of my argument, uh, let's disregard the legality of the thing, Nobby. Now, we have here a situation of a husband committing a grave offence against his wife. And the law? Uh, disregard the law. <laughs> Intellectually, I mean. Uh, he commits this heinous crime. The wife, practicing true Christian forbearance and charity, 
forgives the man, or at least declines to prosecute him. Well? Now, uh, bear with me. Uh, given that uh, that set of circumstances, uh, would not such a man be inclined to repeat the offense? Well, um... Uh, having convinced himself that he'll be allowed, as our American cousins say, allowed to get away with it again. Could be, John. Assuring himself that he need only to satisfy his wife's goodness of soul, her love for him, which she's demonstrated, uh, and, uh, and the payment to the unfortunate young woman of a sum of money proposed by the courts. Well... I don't see where your argument's going, John. But... It's not a bad argument, Nobby. And it follows after one advanced by Mrs. Paget. Assume that the wrong girl's father threatens unpleasantness to Brother Paget. Oh, you're saying that the dead man may be the father of still another victimized girl. Uh, that doesn't sound reasonable. Well, I... Uh, Mrs. Paget was convinced it was reasonable in the case of young uh, uh, Ellen, is it? Uh, uh, she's uh, forgiven a lot. But she boggles at the thought of murder. So for that matter, do I. And what do you think? Why, I think if I were doing it, I... I look about and see if the temporarily missing Mr. Paget has made any other excursions into the extramarital. And then I discover whether the father of the bride is enjoying good health, or has recently been the victim of an all-consuming fire. And then I should order another half-pint for poor old John Davidson, who is now extremely thirsty. John Davidson's ingenious idea was almost right. Mrs. Paget knew of no other liaisons with women of any age, intellectual state or social standing who'd been contracted by her husband. We've been horribly unhappy, Inspector. During all our married life. But I've tried to make allowances. Donald was severely wounded in the war. He was buried alive at Vesterbjort. And they despaired of his life for a long, long time. I didn't know about that. He was such a wonderful person, Inspector. Before we were married and he went to France. At Vesterbjort, only three months after he went overseas. I didn't... Well... I made a vow to myself that if Don recovered and got well, I'd... I don't want to talk about it. I'm sorry, Mrs. Paget. I swore to myself that no matter what happened, no matter what he did, I would try. I... Yeah, I'm sorry, Mrs. Paget. But... He's been unfaithful to me so many times. But this time with Ellen was the only one I knew all about. I was afraid Ellen's father was... Don's mind was affected, you know? By that dreadful wound. He makes mistakes. 
He does things. He can't hold on to a job. He haven't any money. I've tried so hard, Inspector. But not... Oh, not murder. Not murder. Even if it is Donald. That's why I came to you. If it's murder. Not even for Donny. I went away from there back to my office. It was the morning of the 7th of November, less than 32 hours since the young woman had found the blazing car. There was a telegraph form in its envelope on my desk. I looked at it. From Cardiff in Wales. Tore open the envelope. Signature, Arthur Llewellyn. I don't know any Arthur Llewellyn. What's the message say? Donald Patrick Paget will arrive at Hammersmith bus terminal at 9.30pm today the 7th. Important you meet him. You will recognise him from his description. Arthur Llewellyn. John Davidson, it appeared, was wrong. I telephoned him to say so. I didn't telephone Mrs Paget. 9.30 that night I met Donald Paget as he stepped off the Cardiff bus. It was easy to recognise him. We went in a CID car to my office and talked. I'd given up, Inspector, anyhow. It can't be done. Wonder if I could see me wife. She's waiting in the anteroom. You can see her if you want to, if she wants to, after we get this over. All right. I did it. Very well. Donald Patrick Paget, I arrest you on a charge of willful murder and I warn you that anything you say will be taken down in writing and may be used in evidence. Sergeant Talbot, do you have your notebook? Yes, sir. I'm ready. Now, make a statement. I had to do it. First, I got rid of nearly every penny of money we had. I spent it on women. It's funny to say that when I love Pamela. I love poor Pamela and I've treated her so badly. Just women. I don't drink, I don't smoke. But women find me attractive, I'm afraid. And I'm their undoing. And mine, and Pamela's. Yes, and that kid of Ellen's. I couldn't pay the building society on the house. They, they'd have thrown us out in another month. I couldn't pay Ellen or McCracken if they had me in jail. It was just the end of things for me. And for Pamela, so... I picked him up when he asked for a lift. And I poured petrol all over him. That was after I strangled him and stuffed him into the driver's seat. Then I got out 
and poured a trail of petrol down the road to the car and lighted it. And then I remembered I had locked him in. I tried to run back to the car, but it was too late. I ran back and down the ditch, and that was when those, those girls saw me. The game's up. I had intended to run away and be listed as dead in a motor car accident, and Pamela would get the insurance. But they had seen me. I did run away. Isn't very clear to me, I'm afraid. I, I went to Cardiff. Went to see a girl I used to know. Gladys Llewellyn. But she was gone. And her brother Arthur, he saw me. Oh, he hated me for some reason. Did he telegraph you? Uh-huh. I knew I was done for. Can I see Pamela now? Please. All right, Sergeant. Oh, wait. Um, there's one more thing. I don't know who he was. The man I murdered... He was a complete stranger. He just happened along at the right time. I don't know his name. I'm sorry about him. But I'm sorry about so many things. Now, uh, may I see Pamela? All right. Sergeant. Hello, Pam, darling. Hello, Donny. Oh, Pamela. I'm so sorry. I've brought you some of the cigarettes you like, Donny. The identity of the dead man was never learned. Donald Patrick Paget was tried at the Bedford Assize and found guilty of murder. On the 10th of March, 1931, he was hanged at Bedford Prison. This episode is based on the notorious case of Alfred Arthur Roos. Writer-director Willis Cooper makes his fictional murderer far more sympathetic than Roos, who was an extremely promiscuous bigamist and serial adulterer, and may have tried to fake his own death, not for his wife's benefit, but to escape his many financial obligations. Roos did not confess to the police and his trial was a landmark in Great Britain, with the use of forensic evidence playing a large role in his conviction. Both Roos and Cooper were wounded veterans of the Great War, which may account in part for the sympathetic portrayal. Heard today on Whitehall 1212. Mike Duran as Nobby. Amy Scanlon as Pamela. Josh Cole as Donald. Billy Aiken Tyers as Ellen. Patricia Grant as Sergeant Talbot. Martin Hillier, Sergeant Moody. Victoria Rooney as Victoria. Finty Kelly as Jane. Tammy McNeil played the clerk. Zachary Owen Turner played the secretary. Sarah Oldno played the dentist. And I'm William Knight as John Davidson. Whitehall 1212 is written by Willis Cooper. This episode entitled Strange Bonfire was produced by the National Broadcasting Company and originally aired on June 8, 1952. 
This recreation, directed by Chuck and Megan Mara, is produced by Foley Mara Studios. Ending commentary courtesy of the Generic Radio Workshop. <laughs>